Welcome to another episode of the Michigan State University Work-Life Podcast. We're sitting here in 116 Linton Hall on the beautiful campus in East Lansing, Michigan with Gary Roloff, a member of the Department of Fisheries and Wildlife. Gary, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for the invite. I was going to guess what uh, college fisheries and wildlife was under, but I see it's here, the College of Natural Resources. Agriculture and Natural Resources, yep. Yeah, and that uh, is kind of one of the colleges that Michigan that kind of makes up the identity of Michigan State. We were talking before I pressed record that uh, I've talked with a lot of individuals across campus whose departments I didn't even know existed. But I'm pretty well aware of fisheries and wildlife as a concept, but uh, that could run the gamut. So tell me a little bit about what you do now and your background there in the College of Agriculture and Natural Resources. Okay, uh, so we are a, uh, one of the large departments in CANR. Have about 45 faculty, um, 100 or so grad students. Uh, as the name implies, we work on everything from black bears to salamanders to water quality to diseases, uh, pretty broad gamut. I specifically focus on wildlife forestry relationships and have built my research laboratory uh, around that basic theme. Uh, been at MSU for about 14 years now and prior to coming to MSU I actually worked for the forest products industry uh, as a wildlife biologist for 11 years. So What's the biggest difference between academia and industry? Uh, how fast I can get things done. Um, in uh, industry, uh, things were pretty uh, streamlined with minimal paperwork. And once I convinced my manager that it was important, I could get it done pretty quickly. But at the university, there seems to be a little bit more bureaucracy to go a through. A little bit. That's an understatement. <laughs> yes. There's a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of paperwork. We need all those trees that you manage <laughs> exactly. to make all the paper that uh, piles up for our uh, to run our bureaucracy. Uh, is speaking of a huge scope or a large load, you've uh, been a part of a a corporation that had, I'm reading here, 3.2 million acres in the United States. And that just sounds, you know, my family had a 77 acre farmer, we still do, and I just bought one acre myself. But uh, that's only 3.199 million short of the corporation you worked at. So Michigan State has about 13,000 employees, you know, that we serve. Um, I'm looking at this uh, corporation you used to work for, and it seems large. Is there any different? Is it as large as it appears? And is there any difference between our institution here and the size and scope of the corporation that you used to work for? I think the biggest difference structurally. Um, is that the company was very decentralized. So the operating units that ranged from Maine to Oregon to Louisiana to Minnesota, uh, they all kind of ran themselves with oversight from corporate. Whereas I view what we do here at MSU as being much more centralized. Everything kind of flows from the, the top down. That's good to hear that there might be a little bit more integration and cross-pollination 
pardon the pun or the phrase being in uh, natural resources, cross-pollination. Are there any departments, colleges, colleagues that you can think of here at Michigan State that you've worked with uh, in either on a project, a grant, or uh, in the College of Agriculture and Natural Resources? Is that something that is kind of promoted by by the dean. Like, does the dean promote a little bit of uh, cross pollination? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there, there's there's oftentimes incentives for multidisciplinary teams that come out of the dean's office, and and some faculty have programs that fit really nicely into taking advantage of those opportunities. Um, Another aspect of our department is we actually have multiple joint appointments, so the faculty are appointed across different departments. So from that perspective, I get a nice, oh, we have Madison, Lyman Briggs, you know, as a few examples, and, and I so I have that expertise I can tap as part of a research team if I need it, and I have in the past, so it's very helpful. Yeah, I really like those, uh, those joint appointments. I, I learned about those when I was doing a little road show across campus and I met uh, some deans and faculty from all of the colleges here and seeing those joint appointments is almost like a built-in almost you know structural mechanism that allows for people to go between buildings and across teams and that's good to see. My background uh, has been with medical and dental schools and so um, I saw when I was working with dental students and medical students, both at different uh, universities, that the students learn how to work with other disciplines while they're in school. And so we would, we would always look at it and say, if there's this dentist who's been practicing for 50 years and is very comfortable, maybe that dentist is a little less likely to pursue participating in this new initiative we have to work interdisciplinarily with physicians. And so we would try to teach the students in dental school or medical school, the norm of interdisciplinary collaboration. And so I see you supervising a lot of students. And, you know, aside from the interdisciplinary, you know, nature of one of the aspects of, uh, you know, stuff that we can teach students about, what are some of the principles, values, and normal behaviors that you bring to the students you supervise uh, that you think are positive impacts that they'll be taking with them for m- many years? Yeah, so almost all of my my student research projects um, have multiple stakeholder interests. And the expectation is, is that I'm not the face of the project, but the students are the face of the project and hence are required to, to interact with stakeholders. Um, they're required to make sure that the relationship with the stakeholders isn't compromised. Um, and, and I, you know, one of my real close collaborators, for example, is the Michigan Department of Natural Resources, and it's a relationship I absolutely cherish. And, and, and conveying how important that relationship is to me, um, not only to my success, but the student's success, is something that I, I just put right out up front on the table. Um, in fact, it's in a lot of my student announcements that you, you must plan on working across stakeholders and across disciplines because the fisheries and wildlife is very multidisciplinary just by its very nature you know you're dealing with humans you're dealing with animals you're dealing with water um so um i like to think that the students that come out of our department um get decent exposure to that topic yeah and i'm reading in 
you know, on your website, on your department website, that you have a hands-off management style. And it sounds like you've set up mechanisms where students, as you said, are the face of the project with your hands-off, as I'm reading here on your department page. And what I hear there is that you have a lot of trust in your students. You place a lot of trust because if you're not out front running everything and you're letting them do it, that's a lot of trust. How did you, you know, trust isn't automatic. Right. How did you put that in your value system and follow up to that? If you are getting a new grad student in who you've known six months, I mean, trust takes a while to build up. How do you give trust uh, to a student who you've only known for one semester? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I like, <laughs> this may sound uh, egotistical, but I like to think that I'm a really good judge of character. Okay. Uh, so that's where it starts, right? Well, you Is, failed with me. <laughs> <laughs> that's where it, but you know, that's where it all starts. So, you know, I, I just, I get a vibe like students, I've hired students right at professional conferences before, um, just cause I get the right vibe from them, you know? And then when I bring them here and I immerse them in a lab, uh, that we all have that same value and we all are kind of working towards a common outcome, um, it's not like they work for me, but we're working together uh, to make the give the lab more exposure, to deliver to our stakeholders, to deliver to our partners. And I don't have a, you know, I, I can't say as I've ever had a student that that I did not trust to put in front of the DNR or the Forest Service or whoever I'm working with at the time. Uh, it's just, uh, it almost feels kind of organic. Um, so with the people that I try to surround myself with and the types of projects we work on. Uh, so I, I can't point to any one thing, unfortunately. It's just this, I guess it's a process that kind of builds organically. Well, I'll tell you the one thing that does come out from that. It's not an aspect, a component, or a, a value or anything other than vibe, you know. <laughs> uh, but the, the part that stands out to me is that it starts at day one. Absolutely. You know, if we get folks in here who are not a right fit on day one, you can spend all the time you want, and they're not going to change their value system, Yep, probably. So uh, getting that person on the team from day one has been a common theme during these podcast interviews that I've, I've seen. Uh, let, so you get somebody in. And you got a good vibe. How do you determine the amount of workload or the project that you can, uh, the opportunity that you, that you can offer the student? In other words, how do you, after you get the vibe and okay, we have a shared purpose, how do you identify pretty quickly the skill set of that individual so that you can assign the appropriate tasks? Uh, is it just you give them a task and say good luck and they build the skill set or do you do some type of assessment of their skills? How do you do it? Yeah, so so our department probably works a little differently in terms of recruiting uh, graduate students and postdocs than some of the other departments. Um, I have a project that I fit a student to as opposed to bringing in a bunch of students and then trying to find projects for them. So right in my project announcements, I'll have like the minimum qualifications and skills that fit the project the best. So with that model, then the students kind of already have some sense of comfort in being able to deliver what I'm looking for. And, you know, and, and as you know, it takes, a, you know, I'll get 60 or 70 applicants for a, for a master's position, and it takes a long time to, 
to go through all of those and give them you know their due diligence but it's an it's the critical part it's the first step you're absolutely right it's the critical part of getting the right person here to make us all successful uh, we, when we've been talking to outstanding supervisors across campus about getting the right person in, some of those people stay, as I was mentioned to you before this interview, for 50 years. You know, they come in, they're the right person, they stick around for 50 years. But working with students, on the other hand, there's almost a pretty definite short timeline that's there. So you get someone in, they got a great vibe, first project's wonderful, but you know in the back of your mind, you're only with this student for five, you know, depending on uh, how long they stick around, five, six years, and then they're off and they're, you know, gone. How do you deal with that, both in terms uh, of just your style, but also uh, the way that you manage things uh, with students, projects that have a definite timeline? Because it's almost like you could get to the last year and it's just focus on the next student. How do you maintain a focus on the student who you know is going to leave? Yeah, yeah. So, so I, my whole philosophy doesn't necessarily revolve around the deliverables in a research contract. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I bring a student in, I actually commit to not only delivering on the research project, but giving the student um, a, an experience that I feel prepares them for the next steps of their career. So, you know, for example, I'm very supportive of, of students getting involved with the community, um, with departmental activities, uh, collaborating on things that may be outside of the, the reason I hired them. And the whole idea is to, to actually, the way I view bringing students in is it's to build this marketable professional that I know is going to leave in two to five years, but if they're successful, they kind of take a little piece of my lab with them and my lab gets more exposure and hopefully the cycle just keeps continuing, right? Yeah, and that's the real impact. And you mentioned like you, when you get people in, they have to have a, the shared purpose and that's part of the shared purpose. I mean, it should be clear right up front what the purpose of the whole deal is. Yeah. And we're in academia and that's kind of, that's the, that's the business we're in is setting up students for success and they will go off and hopefully, as you said, take a little bit of your lab with them. And, and that's a, a great way to go about it. Uh, what are the professional skills? So when you, when you educate students, you are teaching them subject matter, okay? You can teach them, uh, you know, all the, I'm just going to say, all the types of fish and trees there are in the wilderness, and they can say them all in Latin, you know? I remember that's a, that's a class I struggled with at Michigan State was nomenclature. I couldn't get past that. I was like, they're all just trees. They have names? But you can teach them all this stuff in the book, but they're going to have to go out and be professionals someday. I know you mentioned partnering with the Michigan Department of Natural Resources, which is an employer. But what are some of the tangible, practical, uh, professional skills that you can uh, offer your students uh, as they get ready to become you know, working class citizens out there that's outside of the book? And how do you incorporate that into uh, the the education that you give the students when it's actually not something that's part of the class. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of sort of like a side side uh, hustle. How do you do that? Yeah, so I, I can give you some examples. Um, 
so I mentioned that I let my students really take ownership in the work that they're doing. Um, so like oftentimes we hire undergraduate field technicians and that's the responsibility that I view that as the responsibility of my grad students. Um, they do all the hiring, they do all the interviewing. I have a, they kind of run the final set of candidates by me. Uh, um, but you know, that's a, that's a skill kind of evaluating people and figuring out who you can work with and who you can't, particularly in some potentially pretty inclement uh, environments um, and under some strenuous conditions. Um, you know, so I give them that, that opportunity. Um, all of my students are encouraged to present at professional conferences and publish and go to uh, public meetings to talk about and present their research results. Um, but the challenge there is you can't do it in p-values and t-tests. You know, you got to get it the messaging correct. So it's a really good experience for them in how to convey different levels of their story uh, to different audiences. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you're not talking about p-values on this podcast because I would be falling People asleep. be logging off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I have heard and I read on your uh, department website that you have um, pretty high expectations. I'm hearing that, you know, you set the bar high and then you expect that students deliver. There are a couple ways to receive that. You know, we can I can sit here not being your employee and say, oh, yeah, high bar, lots of hard work. Everybody's going to put their nose to the grindstone and everything's going to work out great. But on the other hand, a high bars and high expectations are tough to live up to. Yeah. There's kind of a lot of stress that goes along with that. But yet you've received the Outstanding Supervisor <laughs> Award. So how do you set a high bar, high expectations and still have a team that's working with you that's not, you know, when you walk out of the room going, this guy, I'm going to have to stay four hours after work just to meet today's workload, you know? Yeah. How, do you, how do you manage that balance? Yeah, oh, no, I think you touched on it in the, how you asked your question. It was, it's working with me and not for me. Um, I think if you ask my students, um, they view it as a, a very collaborative relationship where we actually truly are working together. And I try to give them everything they need to be successful within my means, obviously. And with that shared vision and working together, yeah, you know, every now and then you have a student, you know, stumble a little bit, but you, you just try to help them, you know, get back up on their feet, figure out what went wrong and try to address it. And uh, yeah, it, you know, I, I have real high expectations and, and I'm the type of person that um, I like to just say things once and then I expect it to be done. And that's part of the little thing on the, the Internet there, because if somebody thinks they're going to come into my lab and get a lot of handholding and coddling, um, I might not be the best fit. Um, and I do that purposefully because I, I don't think there's a lot of handholding and coddling out outside of academia, you know, once the students hit the job market. And so I'm kind of giving them a, a little taste of what the future might hold for them as part of that. Yeah, that's a realistic, you know, ed education and experience. Yeah. You're setting them up for success and not giving them some false hope, false premise or false expectation once they get out into the real world. I also hear you being extremely clear 
you know, it could, because if, on the other hand, if somebody's not clear, you'll set a high bar and everything, but you don't say it until the students, you know, midway through their uh, first year working with you. And then they realize, oh, this guy drives a real hard bargain. But everything I read and everything I hear you say is like, Here's it, here it is. This is how I roll. This is what we do. And, you, and like you said, uh, you, you know their approach from day one, and they know your approach even before they meet you. Like I, I read you know, your department website, and I knew kind of what you were going to say. Yeah. You're, not, <laughs> you're not deviating from that. It's pretty clear. So I hear it very, very clearly. Uh, and then there's no misperceptions or false assumptions. Just everybody can be clear about the expectations. One of the things I heard you mention was that you give your employees everything they need or you strive to give them what they need, you know. Uh, so I guess just me stumbling on that question brings up another question. How do you know they have what they need? Uh, but also my original question, what do they need? You know, so um, we here at the work-life office are constantly trying to figure out what employees on campus needs are. And then we try to meet those needs. Uh, so we have a couple ways that we try to figure out what the needs are. How do you figure out what your staff needs? Uh, and also, how do you make sure that they have what they need? Yeah, great question. Um, so I meet frequently with my the people that work with me. And I think... And, I informally kind of monitor their demeanor and their temperament, and I've kind of learned to pick up on when folks are struggling, and without being too prying, I just make sure that I'm doing everything I can to help them with their struggles. And some of that's out of my control, right? But I can point them to the right university resources potentially to help them get through you know, uh, personal things that they might be dealing with. So I try not to be too prying, but again, I, uh, to me, uh, mental and physical well-being is like the building block of being a productive worker. And if there's anything I can do to help that, and sometimes it's just, uh, you know, a student had a bad experience with a, another committee member or a stakeholder and they just need a little pep talk that, you know, everything's going to be all right. And, uh, and other times it can be, you know, I have no financial support for a semester. What am I going to do? And I, I think the challenge for your office is, is there's probably not a consistent theme among these, all these individuals that it's very individualistic. Right. Yeah. And what you really need is some kind of system to get a handle on what those needs are. And so, and sometimes the needs don't emerge until, as you said, you talk to the individual. You know, it's great that you have your radar up, your antennas up. And I've heard that from a lot of outstanding supervisors that I've interviewed so far is you put your antenna up, you see something, and you go and you ask and you talk to them. So if anything seems a little bit just off kilter, especially in terms of work productivity, you know, or demeanor, as you mentioned, something just seems a little bit different. And then you go and you talk to the person. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it, it's not, uh, I know we're all, you know, have PhDs and everything, but at the end of the day, it's as simple as talking to people yeah. Yeah. and then connecting them with the resources that are available here at the university. 
One of the plugs that I always like to give is for Employee Assistance Program, which is right across the hall from us. EAP does a great job, and in your case, maybe some student support services uh, can also do the trick. The Family Resource Center or Student Family Resource Center now, uh, led by Kimberly Steed Page, is great for um, uh, students that have families, you know, and those are students who are in circumstances that are different than mine, and I don't know your circumstance, uh, but it's something that I've started to become acclimated here working at the work-life office is I don't have children, but there are employees that have children, and then that brings up a different set of circumstances. Uh, maybe somebody has a sick kid one day, which I don't have to you know, deal with. So somehow I have to uh, empathize with somebody who's in a completely different circumstance than me. So you uh, are a professor at Michigan State, and uh, that comes with uh, some stability and a relatively decent wage. We're very privileged uh, to be here in this university then, as you mentioned, we get grad students in who sometimes struggle to pay the bills or even, you know, to get good groceries. So my question line is, is taking this sort of direction. How do you build a safe environment that's inclusive so that individuals who come in, in a diff- can, can feel comfortable who are different than you? Uh, a diverse team could be economically diverse, internationally diverse, you know, folks who come in and relocate from internationally, uh, religiously diverse, or uh, in terms of students and professors, a lot of times there's an age difference. So how do you create a climate where people can join your team and they don't have to look like you and they can be in a different circumstance, but still feel safe and comfortable working with you and on your team? Yeah, yeah. We have, so I have a very... I strive to have a diverse lab, um, uh, tribal members, uh, Hispanics, um, black members. Um, and, and we actually have very frank discussions about that topic. And I, my philosophy is, is, is first of all, it's, it's, it's awareness, right? I think everybody in the lab needs to understand some of the challenges some of these other people have faced in their pathway to get to where we all are now in my lab. And we've had some, I mean, some of our lab meetings where we tackle this, this topic, um, you know, there've been tears and uh, just, you could just tell the room was really shook by it. Um, But I think we all come away from those discussions with a greater appreciation for the diversity of people that we're working with. And, uh, and, and we, and that therefore lets us kind of, understand maybe different behaviors we see or whatever you know it just gives us greater awareness um so i really strive to do that and and, you know i i was raised to just to just treat people how i want to be treated and i i i just do not i I do not operate well in a hierarchy i i kind of don't view myself as their boss I view more as a coworker that makes decisions that affect everybody. Yeah. Right. Um, so you know, I pressure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know, I got to admit, the every time I've I've had an issue pop up with a student, and at least within our college, um, there are a lot of resources out there. You listed off some of them, but I have never been turned away when it came down to a student needing financial help 
psychological, whatever the help might be. Um, and supervisors that don't take advantage of those resources and instead just kind of turn the student away, that's just a bad practice that needs to end. Yeah, and that that's some of the things, some of the some of the, the substance that's been coming out of this these podcasts too. It's like we can talk all day about the good things to do, but we are very, very upfront in admitting that a, one of the purposes of this podcast is to reach those folks that aren't doing what the outstanding supervisors are doing, you know, and we really need to ingrain in supervisors across the university that it's normal and expected at a supervisor level to refer to services. And if people aren't, if supervisors aren't referring to the appropriate services, it's a real disservice to the students and anyone that they're supervising. So we're not trying to call anyone out or, you know, but it's like you set a high bar for your students. We set a high bar for supervisors at Michigan State that if you're not referring to the right resources like work-life office, EAP, et cetera, um, then you're just not living up to the standards at Michigan State. And I say that very clearly and very, very bluntly, as you do with your students uh, setting expectations. I, I hear again that being open and listening to your students, especially in those team meeting settings that uh, might be sometimes emotional, it, it creates awareness. They're not always easy, as you say, you know, like it might get heated or, you know, it's, it's a different kind of meeting. Some supervisors are standoffish and push issues under the rug and they pretend like they, you know, these issues don't exist. But it sounds like you're doing a great job of getting things out front when they need to be out. And then uh, we can address things with through uh, listening and uh, being open with each other and being aware. And I got it. I'll tell you, you know, that that is not my forte. <laughs> I am not the type of person that that likes talking about feelings. Mm-hmm. And I'm not me either. Uh, I don't like talking about myself. So this is really hard for me. today. <laughs> but, uh, but so, you know, that that was that's an uncomfortable space for me to be in as a supervisor um, but I, I am totally convinced that uh, the benefits of, of being like that far outweigh the levels of discomfort that I experience. Right, right. How do you um, know that your staff are feeling appreciated? Because when I was in grad school or when I had jobs uh, in academia, when I was, you know, early career, I got satisfaction out of just, you know, my paycheck or my, you know, my diploma. It's a symbol that I achieved something, but I didn't have a lot of pats on the back through it all. You know, it was a lot of uh, internal, personal, uh, you know, patting on the back and, and appreciation to myself and, and also through my social networks, my family and stuff like that. Um, but appreciation from a boss is... It's, it's outstanding. We should make it normal. Um, but it, it doesn't come easy to every supervisor. So, again, this podcast is trying to reach folks who might be saying, hey, I bought my staff donuts. Don't they know that I love them more than my dog? Uh, other than buying donuts, uh, how do you appreciate your staff? And how do you ensure that they – or how do you know that they feel appreciated? Yeah, so, so I'm very upfront if they do something well, um, that I'm very verbal with congratulating them, acknowledging them, recognizing them in front of the lab. It's a 
It can be a slippery slope, though, right? Um, because if if all of that attention goes to you know one particularly successful employee, then you kind of start having the the lab unity breaking down. So I try to find good and bad in every one of my students, and and uh, and we talk about both the good and the bad. Um, we work collectively as a unit to try to nominate each other for awards. I've had a lot of students win uh, awards and recognition. Um, and then I've, I've got a very rigid, our department requires it, but I've got a very rigid annual review process that's mm -hmm. written. We all both agree on the content and sign off on it. Um, so, you know, I, I, I try to not just point out the good things, pat on the backs all the time but uh, again I, I make sure we're meeting the deliverables if there's a bad conversation we have to have we have it but we stay right. professional about it nobody holds a grudge you know it's uh, again we're just working towards this common goal right plus you're not hiding anything yeah you know uh, outstanding supervision recognizes areas for improvement you know it's not just all roses and rainbows uh, outstanding supervision includes identifying areas that ne that might need to be improved and bringing those out and talking about them so that everyone is aware. Uh, I've heard the award nomination thing from other outstanding supervisors. It's something that I do myself. I'm not a supervisor right now, but uh, I I you know even when I was teaching students, it's like nominate this student for the great student award, yeah. nominate this employee for the great employee award. And even if they don't win the award, the fact that they were nominated shows that you appreciate their work. Uh, and that's, that's something that I've heard repeatedly uh, through these interviews. You mentioned the going with the good and going with the bad, you know, uh, being aware of when things are going great and also not hiding when things don't go so well. We've talked a lot about uh, your team during this interview and that's another thing that most outstanding supervisors just want to talk about them their team and not themselves um, and you've done that but I'm going to ask you a question about yourself uh, when things go bad in your department or in your lab when tough decisions need to be made you know and you have to report to your boss and your boss says something uh, just make up a hypothetical that oh you got to cut a third of your workforce or you got to do this or you got to do it. and now you as a supervisor have to deliver bad news to your team or you're really stressed out even if you don't have to deliver the bad news but something behind the scenes is going on and you almost have to put on a happy face to your team or do you put on a happy face how do you navigate a day or a week or a period of time at Michigan State when behind the scenes, waters are rocky, things aren't going so well? On front, front stage, you got to go and you got to meet these students who are eager and really excited and happy to do today's project. So how do you balance that all? Yeah, so one of the things I've learned is I, I refuse to make knee-jerk reactionary decisions, as that's gotten me in trouble in the past. Live and uh, learn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I'll get something bad will happen, and I'll be upset. And, and I'm a very, my person, I've, I've recognized my personality type. It's very, it's very reaction. It's immediate reaction, and I take things personally, which probably aren't very healthy traits. But <laughs> So I've learned to just, just step away from it and think about it before I respond. Uh, 
Um, if things are going rocky for me and they do not have a direct impact on my ultimate goals for the students, I don't even bring the students into it. I, I try not to burden the students with issues that I think I can handle um, unless this issue has a direct link to them being successful here. You know, then I'd, I'd bring them in and we'll sit down and try to figure out an alternative pathway for success. Yeah, that's a very logical and rational way to go about it. I also am going to mention that uh, there are a lot of resources and support for supervisors. You know, uh, I'm new to the work life office, but my previous job at uh, MSU at the Division of Public Health in Flint, I was a supervisor and I was undergoing a lot of stress myself and I sought out resources like EAP. And I, I say the phrase, there's no shame in my game. You know, I had a staff of like a dozen uh, individuals, but there I was seeking out the resources and support that I needed. So it's uh, absolutely good supervision, outstanding supervision, is connecting your employees with the resources they need and also making sure that you have the self-care and awareness of your own circumstances to seek out the resources that you uh, need. Um, or could benefit from as a supervisor. Well, I'm starting to get to the end of my line of questions, so I kind of ended on a fun, positive note. This is the podcast series where we are talking to past Outstanding Supervisor Award winners. And what comes with an Outstanding Supervisor Award is an Outstanding Supervisor Celebration. I started the podcast series talking to Kirk Domer from the Department of Theater, the chair of the theater department, and he had a pretty great story about his celebration. Now, a great celebration to me only involves the best cake and ice cream. <laughs> so tell us uh, your fondest memories of your Outstanding Supervisor Award uh, celebration. Pretty funny. This, my students, so there were multiple students involved, they, and they got me good, so I... They I hoodwinked was, you. Yeah, they hoodwinked oh. me big time. So I was I was on this departmental committee that I thought I was off of, and they convinced the chair to tell me to come up to the meeting room because I needed to come up and work on this committee. So I'm up there, and I'm all angry, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and annoyed. And I, I, I actually sat down, and the chair was there and a couple other the committee members that I used to work, that I worked with, and I, I looked at the chair. I said, I thought I was off this committee. <laughs> and then everybody came in the room. They had my, uh, my wife, um, my youngest son was there, all the students with the cake and the ice cream. And, yeah, they got me really good. So uh, very memorable. So. That's a, that is a good one. That is a good student. That's the first time I heard somebody, it, it, they didn't just hide something. They they specifically presented a very unfortunate circumstance exactly. for you and flipped the script on you. So that was very creative. What year was that? Oh, gosh. When was that? That was 2009, maybe, eight. I'm, I'm not even sure. So that team's probably long gone by now. I still got one hanging on. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Cool. Very good. Very good. Well, I hope you keep in touch with uh, those students who have left in the past and the students who are to come in the future. Gary Roloff, it's been a very uh, good time talking with you. My pleasure. And uh, thanks for coming in talking today about outstanding supervision. Likewise. Thank you for the invite. <laughs>